Welcome to the Parker Avery Group's podcast series, Talk Retail to Me, where we offer insights and realistic advice from experts in the retail and consumer brands industries. If you're new to Parker Avery and this podcast, we are a leading retail and consumer goods consulting firm with over 600 years of collective experience, both as consultants as well as leadership positions in the industry. Our firm uniquely combines deep industry experience with consulting expertise and world-class talent to deliver meaningful results. Our approach allows us to build successful, long-term relationships with some of the most recognizable retail and consumer brands in the world. If you're interested in learning more about the Parker Avery Group, we invite you to visit parkeravery.com. Today we are talking with some members of Parker Avery's analytics SWAT team, Evan Witz, Scott Carilla, and Luke Vakunis. Led by our Chief Analytics Officer, Sam Iosevich, this team of talented mathematics experts are continuing to enhance Parker Avery's analytics offerings for our retail and CPG clients. While Evan, Scott, and Luke have been deep into the math, science, and artificial intelligence, we also recognize that there is a very human element that must accompany these analytic solutions. So in this episode, we're going to talk about how this team's work impacts the very human settings of retail and consumer goods companies. And we'll also touch on how mathematics in a business environment differs from an academic environment. Um, according to a recent RIS News publication titled Intelligent Proliferation Using AI Effectively, businesses need to find the perfect balance between artificial and emotional intelligence. Activities and decisions should be supported by both technology to make life easier and human judgment in order for output to be received well by the consumers. We wanted to explore this component of analytics with our team for their perspectives. Well, welcome everybody. Thank you for joining me today. I wanted to get your perspectives on the article and how the solutions you develop help bridge the gap between how real people are interacting with the outputs from our analytics. Uh, so there's 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 a few things here. I mean, most of us have come from academic uh, backgrounds, so uh, very you know so 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 math, mathematics is is what's is who's overrepresented uh, here on uh, call today. Uh, and and the reason that we've recruited the uh, folks that are, that are on the call here today is that every single one of these folks has done something what we thought was uh, special in grad school, right? So uh, they, they really researched something and were able to do some original work uh, on their own, which is not always true of uh, everyone who goes through that graduate program. Uh, what we, we want to make sure that happens at Parker Avery, every implementation that we go through, we take some sort of IP uh, or we build some sort of IP and bring it back into our tool chest. And in this case, when we're working with the client, uh, it's solving their sp specific problem. And, and it's a business problem, right? So we're not, it's not something that's academic here. It is a real business problem that we're solving. Basically, it could be around inventory or pricing. And, and we're taking those, you know, call it AI, machine learning, what have you, and we're applying it to, uh, to the business world. And we always have an eye on improving the state of the art or, or where we are and constantly bringing in innovation into the process and then bringing that back into our, our tool chest. At this point, 
you know, Scott, Evan, and Luke have all gotten a chance to work on projects, but, but also on some of the development of our tool chest. I would love to hear uh, their perspective and maybe they can talk a little bit about some of the things that they work on. Okay, so stuff I've been working on perhaps most recently, we've run into a problem with certain clients where for various reasons, maybe they're slow on reporting data. Uh, it happens. And so the question is, how can we continue to make informed analytics decisions and recommendations if we don't have the most recent data? And so what we're working towards is using AI to kind of handle this small task. It's not as straightforward as it sounds. You know, you can't just throw AI at a problem and it just magically solves things for you. Yeah, you're talking about data harvesting, right? So, so the idea that you know you have to apply you're applying algorithms across the entire hierarchy, and they all of the data needs to be up to a particular date. And when you have certain holdouts for certain accounts or for certain parts of the hierarchy, well, you can't run the process as is. You know, normally you have to get humans involved. You have people to get involved and somehow, you know, get, get their best guess to get the data up to the time, particular time frame, so that you can run the analytics and get forecasts and elasticity estimates and what have you. Well, now with AI, and AI is really the automation of, you know, using machine learning of tasks that humans used to do in, in the past, what we now have is using the machine learning algorithms, we automate the, the creation of that data, you know, and get that up to the point where, where we can continue to run the weekly or monthly process and continue to deliver results. Where what would have happened in the past is either a human would have to do it, and many times the human, you know, there's not enough humans to go around to, to solve some of these problems. So what happened is, you know, the latest information is not there. And what you wind up doing is, you know, either under forecasting, causing bias, in, you know, in the system, and then underestimating certain demand drivers, uh, which, which is obviously going to have a big impact on, on the business process. Right. So I'd like to understand, Luke, what your perspectives on that intelligent proliferation article about how activities and decisions supported by technology make life easier, but there's human judgment um, required for the output to be received by the end user. Help me understand your perspective on that. Sure. Well, there's always a great deal of uh, anxiety if one is trusting uh, a great deal of predictions or, or what have you uh, to the algorithm. In some of the works uh, that I've done here at Parker Avery, we've had these situations where there's a method, it works in a bunch of generic cases, but then once we apply it to the data, uh, something a little bit hinky happens. It's failing here, it's failing there, and the going in and, and, and in diagnosing what exactly is going wrong why the, this, this, these pathologies are deviating from the generic case. It's a little bit like uh, picking a lock. There's always some ad hoc detail, some flourish of ingenuity, uh, some unique contingency to account for. So, so there's lots of, lots of ad hoc troubleshooting and there's always uh, you know, some, some unique ingenuity which is required in each case, which requires one to, to dig into the blood and guts and, and really understand by a deeper understanding. It's a bit tricky because, how should I put this? In a textbook on some of the, the subject matter that we partake of here, there might be detailed case studies. So, so one might take a REMA model for time series forecasting, and that would be chapter one of the book. 
And then chapter two of the book, they take a, a different model of time series forecasting, such as exponential smoothing, and they'd go through the same example and show how this method is slightly different than the foregoing and has a slightly different profile of advantages and disadvantages. And then maybe the same running example would serve as fodder for the next uh, several chapters. But here, when we're applying things at systematic scale, if there are 500,000 cases to which we have to apply the algorithm, we have to sort of tie ourselves to the masts and trust the process and uh, really make sure that there's there's no way things could go wrong in cases that we can't manually assess. How do you give the business the confidence to trust the outputs of all those algorithms and the deep science behind it? Well, I think uh, we have to develop the proof is in the pudding. So mm -hmm. lots of uh, accuracy diagnostics, lots of back testing, lots of saying, here we did this on the previous 12 months of data and it worked and we looked how it works on the previous six months of data and we've uh, developed several uh, several projects where we've applied this and it's worked and uh, always back testing and tuning uh, and so forth and always 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 upgrading one's diagnostics that one uses to, to, to vet that things are within normalcy that they're behaving as they should. How do we get not only to trust, but for them not to be afraid that the analytics is going to completely take over somebody's job or role? That's that's a <laughs> that, that's that's a harder one. So 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 the first thing that we tell them before we we get even started with any of this, it's not a competition between us versus them. In fact, we can't be successful without them. I can't think of a single engagement in the last twenty five years where we would have been successful had we not understood the business. And, and the knowledge of that business really a lot lies with the people that, that, that are on the ground. Uh, if we're talking about a demand planning process, those, those planners really have you know, hooks into every functional area within the organization. And it's that knowledge of the marketing, the pricing, the supply chain uh, that we really need to have uh, to be able to do the work, the work that we do. Now, sure, there's going to be some automation and there's going to be maybe less, less folks to do a particular task. It's more of a change or a movement in role. Uh, and, and some of that movement is towards higher value added jobs. And so they can think of it more of as not only an improvement in the process, but an improvement in the work that they do versus fearing that that, that particular job will go away. Maybe that particular job going away is a good thing for them. Right? Because now they don't get to focus on, as I said, higher value added tasks. Yeah, so it's less a replacement and more of a augmenting of that role. Or even an upgrade. Right. What is AI? It's really the, it's using machine learning for the innovation. I mean, I'm sorry, for the automation. If it's something that can be automated, if it's something that's repetitive, then is that something that you want to be doing? Wouldn't you rather let the machine do the, the repetitive work and really concentrate on the, the higher value work associated with how different departments work together? Uh, how you can take the knowledge from supply chain given certain disruptions and, and help and then work with marketing to understand that maybe that we should hold back in certain promotions or, or, or certain events because we're not going to have the, the merchandise to support it, for example. Isn't that a higher value added task? And, 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 a, and a better use of your time than going through cells uh, and changing something up 10% or down 5%. Isn't that something that you'd rather be doing? Yeah, it's a lot like that movie. And Kathy Toll, our change management leader, talks about the movie Hidden Figures. 
where NASA had started down this route and they had people that were doing all the calculations and then in came IBM and they had and those all those roles moved over from entering data into learning how to program computers and it totally took their their roles from one skill level you know way up to a, a much higher skill level very very applicable i would think Evan you've been awful quiet over there what are your thoughts on bridging that gap between human and machine Generally speaking, there are a couple of different facets to the notion of bridging the gap between human intelligence and artificial intelligence. And there's kind of the going one way where human intelligence augments uh, artificial intelligence. And there's the other way where the artificial intelligence augments the human intelligence. And both are important. So when it comes to, for instance, human intelligence augmenting uh, artificial intelligence, one of the ways in which that's important sort of ties into the notion of jobs not going away, but maybe sort of translating into sort of new areas is when you're constructing these uh, models that you're utilizing for artificial intelligence, you still need to know what data is important in order to accurate or in order to make meaningful forecasts. You don't want to necessarily overfit your data and include all sorts of data sources with miscellaneous data that's largely irrelevant to sales, because then you wind up in situations where your model isn't is just drawing wild conclusions from irrelevant things. But you also want to make sure that you're including everything that's important. So like promotional data, you want to make sure that when an item going is going on sale, for instance, you're including it. You or maybe you want to know when an item is being advertised and that will have some important additional information that can help to improve the accuracy of your forecasts. And I'm being a little bit sort of general here, largely because this is something that we're not going to be perfectly trained on. And it's the reason why we need to get in contact with uh, the clients that we're working with. They have the sort of experience already there to know, oh, yes, we've seen that these factors may be like something as trivial as like the positioning of items on shelves, you know, are seemingly trivial to us, uh, has a real meaningful impact on whether or not this product moves. And it's that sort of information, that sort of insight that can be very helpful to us when it comes to actually uh, constructing the models that we use and the artificial intelligence, how it learns. Uh, to make predictions. And then touching on sort of the other way that I was talking about uh, artificial intelligence informing humans, at the end of the day, like you're saying, you know, you need to make sure that the client actually trusts the forecast that is being output. So a good portion of that can be obtained or of trust, that trust can be obtained by just maintaining communication with the humans, letting them be fully involved with the process, you know, and say, okay, what is it that you want to see out of this uh, forecast in order for you to feel comfortable with it? And that can go into some of the stuff that I was talking about before, where, where you ask the clients, okay, what are some of these factors that are important and how is it that we can incorporate them? Because the more that the model 
incorporates some of their own insights that they have noticed, I believe the more that they will uh, grow to trust the artificial intelligence and its ability to accurately predict how their sales is going to be. Yeah, and that kind of points to the second topic that I wanted to, to talk about, and that is about storytelling. In a recent publication from Qualtrics, they talk about the notion of storytelling through data with the premise that humans are not ideally set up to understand logic, they ideally understand stories. How are our clients using the analytics outputs to tell stories that improve their business results? What sometimes happens is that, you know, we get brought in with a particular question on one particular account. You know, where should we reduce the price of a particular offering uh, so, so, so that we can, you know, we, we can get, you know, more sales, obviously, and so on and so forth. And we have a situation that uh, we look through it and say, well, actually, you have a much bigger miss on the other, the other side. And so to taking that data, taking the output, but really making them, helping them understand how that's applied to the business. And that's through, and then you always tell a story. I like to tell everyone, you know, when I look at a set of output, I, I talk about, well, think about this as Goldilocks and three and the three bears or, or pick a story or, or red writing or whatever. So, so you, you have to take them from the beginning all the way through to the end, walk them through. Here's where we started. Here's what you wanted to understand. Here's the data that, that we took. Here's how we modeled that data. Here's what the output of the data was. Here's the test that we ran so we're sure that the data is valid. And oh, by the way, what that means, what that was pointing to is that you might want to think about the direction, about a different direction. And oh, by the way, if you take this direction and if we apply the, the, this data to the, you know, if we apply this data in the following way, here's the way that your business process changes. And if this business process changes this way, here are how the KPIs are, are, are affected. So, so that's how we'd like to tell the story as we move through engagement. You know, we're, we're in a data-driven society nowadays. Uh, there's, there's just too much out there to, for any human to reasonably sift through and actually understand what's going on. Ultimately, when we're trying to tell a story, we take, you know, this big pile of data and trim it down to just the essentials. What, what is the big picture? What's going on on the, on the zoomed out scale. Uh, why is that useful? Uh, well, it cuts down on the amount of data uh, the humans actually need to sift through. And more so, I think it's, let's say we didn't use the data at all. We're going off of intuition to make business decisions. If there's one thing I learned from my grad school, it's that intuition is frequently wrong, but that's not a bad thing. So we use, you know, this, this big picture description of what's going on in the data to kind of decide what direction we need to go in. And you can use the intuition you've developed over time, domain knowledge and whatnot, to judge whether or not that's that's a good direction to be going in. So they, they kind of you know complement each other, but you can't really get to that stage of making those decisions until you cut out all of the extraneous info that's out there. Because if you don't do that, you know, going back to intuition is frequently wrong, if you look at everything all at once, you might start seeing patterns that aren't really there. And this is something that AI does as well. And so Evan had mentioned uh, overfitting. And it's that concept of intuition looks for patterns. You might see patterns that aren't there. So if we can remove anything that isn't really driving towards that, that ideal solution, 
it allows the business side of, of things to more easily and accurately apply the intuition they've developed, if well, that makes sense. Yeah, like a validation to some extent. Almost changing their intuition. Almost changing their intuition. So, 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 uh, so, so, guys, can you talk a little bit about what what you see as the differences between working, let's say, in an academic environment versus working in a you know a, a, a business <laughs> environment? I mean, as I said, as I started the call, I mean, well, I said the reason that that I you know that you guys are here is that you know you you guys can work independently. And, and as I mentioned, we're, we're constantly upgrading our our, our, our our tool chest. We're constantly moving that forward with every implementation. You know, outside of implementations, we're improving our our tool chest, doing something doing something different, and something that that you know you may not have a set of instructions for original work. So so from that aspect, it's close to what you have done in academia, but in many ways, it's 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 different. I'd love to hear your perspective on on what's the same and and, and really what's different. And I, I don't know. Evan, want to go first? <laughs> yeah, sure. So, what's the same with regard to academia? So, obviously, one thing that's going to be the same is we're looking to bring in the knowledge that we have ascertained from our experience with academia into the business world, you know. So a lot of the pure mathematical uh, information that we're utilizing is going to be the same. There are going to be some modifications to how it is exactly that they're applied, you know, but ultimately these aren't two wholly disjointed fields of knowledge, you know. They're related, obviously. That's uh, beneficial to have that insight from academia when applying information to new fields. One benefit I think I've found, not just during my time with Parker Avery, but also through my education, is some of the greatest insights that you'll get is by taking uh, knowledge that you have from a prior uh, seemingly unrelated field and using that to inform your study of something new. That's often where some of the best insight comes in mathematics. You can talk about, uh, I forget which of the millennium problems it was solved. I think it was, uh, I, that's largely unrelated though, but uh, a very, uh, sorry? It was Perlman, right? Okay. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. A very famous problem in mathematics. I, I'd have to take a little bit of time look this up because it's been a while since I've looked at it, but yeah. Something about Ricci flow. Yeah, yes. Well, he worked out 10 years in, uh, in, his, uh, in his mother's attic. So, <laughs> so from that aspect, that what we do is a little bit uh, different. Oh, and he also refused uh, the $1 million prize uh, that was associated with, with solving that problem because he was doing it for the love of the game. So that maybe that's a little different too. I think that's a different Millennium problem, if I'm not mistaken, right? I, I know we're kind of going off on a tangent You're here. Fine. No, no, I think Sam has it right. Uh, so there was a lot of drama concerning Perlman's solution uh, because I think it was a very famous Harvard mathematician whose name I can't remember, was basically working on the problem at the same time. And the difference was that Perlman, you know, wasn't deeply connected with, you know, this the academic community in, in the States. And uh, he published his first, his solution. And everyone else seemed to have the, you know, be behind Harvard man's uh, back. Caused a lot of drama. 
Perlman got fed up with it and decided to leave mathematics. Whoa. Yeah. Well, no, he was publishing it on a random, like on a random site and just putting it up for everyone to use. He was much more interested in, in everyone having that, that, that result. But as it turned out, he did publish everything first. That was confirmed that it was his and uh, that others were actually taking, taking, his, uh, uh, taking his work. But yeah, he turned down the, the $1 million Millennium Prize. He turned down the Fields Medal, uh, which I believe also comes with, is it another million dollars? <laughs> no, uh, it's, it's 15,000 Canadian. It's 15,000 Canadian. 15,000 Canadian. <laughs> And okay, well, the Millennium Prize is a million dollars, and then, but, but he does live in poverty in his mom's attic. Maybe he didn't want the million dollars, but he should have at least taken it for his mom. But that's a different story. <laughs> I'm, we're, we're, we're getting Sorry, sorry on that's the all tangent. right. But were you were you thinking of ABC conjecture, maybe, Evan? Maybe that might be it. But but in terms of like how this is how how this is just to bring us back, how this is different is obviously the time frames are are, are a little bit different here than they are in academia. Where uh, often you would work in a problem, you know, and then Perlman was a good example where you worked on the problem for 10 years. Uh, obviously, we don't have that type of uh, time. But there are problems that, that we've been working on for, for years that, that are on the side. But more often, we're working on something that should take weeks or could take uh, months. But, but again, there's no, there's no set of instructions to do this first, that second, and third, or, 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 or so on. This is something that you attack from, from from different angles and and there may or may not may not be a good solution and this is though how we stay uh relevant in the market because we're not just copying what it, what everyone else does what we're doing is we're solving the business pro we're solving the business problems in, in a unique way and many times what that means is we get ahead of the field in, in, in certain ways not everywhere obviously we pick our battles but what we have is a class leading solution where we were constantly innovating. Uh, and that's why we, we have folks uh, like you guys at uh, Parker every day. So, and of course, oh, sorry, Scott. Go ahead, Luke. I've already talked enough. Sure. I was just going to add that lots of operational details are completely absent from an academic setting. Uh, for instance, as data scientists, a lot of the work we do involves a programming aspect, cleaning the data, automating the, the flow of the processes that we maintain, but this involves sort of desiderata and components that you really don't focus upon in academia. Uh, for instance, consider the, the task of writing code that is maintainable and updatable. Uh, you have to write code that's that's uh, very robust to errors, uh, that is automated, uh, that could proceed smoothly for months at a time, and that you that you could change easily. You don't have to type in hundreds of lines of code to make a change. If uh, the client requests an entirely new approach, uh, you could just make a few small adjustments and everything organically gets accounted for in the code. Considerations like these are not things you you'd focalize upon in an academic study where setting where you're just focusing on the mathematics of an algorithm or here's a case study where I could uh, have, you know, spend my afternoon using a sort of point-click, more ad hoc approach to the coding. When you're operationalizing the code in a very rigorous manner so that it could, could you know, proceed without a hitch at, at regularity, uh, that's a very different focus from what people do if they're just uh, analyzing a specific problem sort of at leisure and it's the mathematical details and such, not the operational regularity of the, the process uh, that's the main issue.
Yeah, and look, that's a very good point. Uh, you know, although we don't work against the script when we when we innovate, when we do innovate and we bring that into our tool chest, what what gets innovated does need to have a script and uh, so for, for the client to, to use. Uh, so clients appreciate the innovation that we do, but finally, what 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 we bring to them is a automated, tested way of working. And that's not something that you have to end with in academia, but it's absolutely uh, but putting a bow, bow on top of uh, the work that we do, the innovation that, that we bring to the table is absolutely critical in industry. Uh, so that is certainly a, uh, a major difference. Indeed. And there's also a cooperative like element to this, just to, to finish my point. I might, I mean, we've had scenarios where certain people might work on a certain job, but then they might get reallocated to a certain other contract. And so if, uh, say, Scott writes something and then he goes to work on an entirely different project and I'm the one maintaining Scott's work, well, that's sort of, um, like Scott has to structure his code so that I understand it. It has to be very clear. In academia, people are sort of lone wolves. They do their own thing. They, they work on their own papers and they pu publish them making the, the work hyper-transparent for your colleagues, uh, making your code very accessible, making the, the algorithms that you put into your code very well elucidated so that anybody could just spend 10 minutes reading the documentation and pragmatically, quickly getting a quick feel for what's going on. Uh, that's something which, that's not really an aspect which I think is, is present in academic settings, but is, is certainly relevant with our sort of work. Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing that reminds me of, Sam, we talk about this a lot, is the ability for companies to break down some of those silos, because if everyone's operating independently versus marching to the same drum, you know, to the, we talk about a lot, the, the, the consistent demand signal. Um, so very, very similar train of thought in that it's everybody working together versus everybody working sort of independently. And that, probably an untouted benefit of analytics. If you're working on the same data and the same intelligence, you are a much more nimble, much more agile company and team as a result of it. Agreed. Um, so the consumption side of, uh, of things is very, very different from, from, the, from the innovation. And that's what I think, uh, I think what, we, what we've done well and what we will continue to uh, to focus on is like we've talked a lot about the, the innovation side of things but finally bringing that into a very consumable format for, for the consumer one thing that i really like about us within parker avery is parker avery traditionally focused on business process and change management and still does that today so 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 the idea of you just don't bring a piece of technology or, or, or analytic uh, and, or, or set of analytics to, to a company and walk away. Well, what, that, what happens is no matter how good it is, it becomes shelfware, right? So the idea is you bring something in, you incorporate this into the business process, right? Then, then you go over it with change management. What change management really means is making sure that everybody's bought into the new business process. So, so the, the innovation is something that we start with. We, we get to the analytics and, and something that's very impactful, but it's finally incorporating into the business process, making sure that everyone is bought in, that, 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 that makes it worthwhile for, for clients. Agreed. And I think that's a perfect way to end this episode. Sam, Evan, Scott, and Luke, appreciate taking some time out of your, your deep math and science 
work that you've been doing. And uh, it was nice talking with you and always enjoy getting the, the SWAT team together. And we will talk to you again soon. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. So that wraps up today's episode. We hope you found value in the content and in the discussion. If you have any questions and would like to reach out, please feel free to visit our website at parkeravery.com. We also invite you to join our conversation on LinkedIn. Just search for the Parker Avery Group.